The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mommy, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with our TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller-Seitz. Hi guys. Hi. How was your weekend? It was nice. Nice, very nice. Did you watch any TV? Did you have any... Anything you caught up on from the last week that kind of stuck out to you? Uh, I've been really into American Idol again this season against all signs and better judgment and stuff. I just think this season is good and interesting. Mm. And I just think the feedback, especially from um, Keith Urban and Harry Connick Jr., is just so descriptive and accurate and helpful. (laughs) And it's just like, oh, right. Like, there's nothing more interesting for me, like, in life or on television than being good at something. Any sort of demonstration of feats of skill and knowledge are just sort of inherently fascinating to me. And so to hear them in these like very tiny sound bites give very accurate, interesting feedback has been a real change of pace because I think a lot of American Idol fans got sort of burnt out hearing the same sort of nonsense crap. And it was just like, I can't listen to this anymore. You know, like my piano teacher would give better feedback than this. And so to have American (laughs) Idol suddenly have like a little bit of pep in its step is like a really nice, interesting surprise. That makes me think that maybe I should start watching it again. That's like a bad relationship show for me. Like, (laughs) like it's like, I'm done. I'll never do this again. And then it'll do something like, I love you show. No, I mean, I'll never Right? I feel like it's um, it's an ex that you discovered you could be friends with. (laughs) Right. Like, I'm not like, I don't actually like, you you know what? We don't belong together. Like, yeah. American Idol's not going to be like, bury me with this show. Like, we love each yeah. other forever. But, okay, you know what? I wasn't crazy. There was something to this, and we do still have things in common. And, you know, there's a way that we understand each other that you can't ever have with a new friend. There's a history there. The thing that I thought that uh, The Voice did better, uh, at least at the beginning, because there was no competition to speak of, was <laughs> yeah. they actually showed you how people improved a little yeah. bit yeah. more than American Idol. Like, they didn't do a great job of it, but that was one of the things that was always, like, if I go back and read my old reviews of American Idol during the first five or six years, I was constantly up on a soapbox about how they don't show you the improvement. They don't show you the process of them mentoring these people. And, like, when somebody shows up, like, they're basically a country western or a rock sort right. of person and then one day they show up and they're doing a, a rearrangement of a torch song from the 40s like <laughs> yeah. I want to know that I want to know what led to that like yeah. that's that to me right. sounds more dramatic than just them showing up on stage and people going wow great job right or just you know the same old shit over and over and over and over and I think yeah. it's there's sort of a limit to how many times I can hear I don't know sign seal delivered is the one that sticks out <laughs> for me um, that, that one feels yeah. like I really got I really really heard that one enough times yeah um, even Stevie Wonder's had it oh yeah for yeah. sure but this season they do have a little bit like you know we talked last week about you trying this so I really hope that she focuses on blank and you know getting into like the sort of nuts and bolts of like when you're rushing versus the accompaniment and like you should have arranged this you know a half step higher so like things yeah. would get a little more raw and it's just like oh interesting like that's a Good point. And yeah. not something that, you know, Randy Jackson was saying a lot of. <laughs> Do you have any favorite idols this year? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I feel like a dick being like, I can't imagine ever buying an album any of these people releases. But I, on, I can't. Um, but that's sort of not... 
I mean, that's like the ostensible point, but like I watch it for the television more than for any kind of like, ooh, I'll be a fan of this person forever. Fantasia Barino doing Summertime was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. On oh, that television. was amazing. Sure. And I, and I don't think the show has ever, I mean, I, not like I've watched every episode, but in, in subsequent years, it never got anywhere close to that. No, although I will say I thought that Clay Aiken doing Bridge Over Troubled Water was another high water mark. <laughs> that was pretty nice. That was pretty good. Like, I yeah. will rep for, what is that, 20 year old Margaret's obsession with that episode. <laughs> yeah. Matt? I've been catching up with a lot of these shows that are coming back. I've been rewatching old Mad Men's to kind of get my Mad Men calisthenic muscles going again. Yeah. And, and I watched the first batch of episodes of Game of Thrones, which we're going to talk about, and Silicon Valley, which I had to go back and watch the end of last season because there were some details that were a little fuzzy. And, uh, well, we'll talk about Game of Thrones, but I have to say I'm not aware of any show in the history of television that has been more gripping telling a story more slowly than that one. That's nothing to sneeze at. And we'll talk next yeah. week more about Silicon Valley and Veep in particular. But I think yeah. this week we're going to try to focus on uh, Mad Men, Mad and, Men Game and Game of Thrones. Of Thrones. Yeah. And we'll also have the showrunner from The Comedians join us. Vulture's West Coast editor Joe Adalian will be speaking with Ben Wexler, who's the showrunner of that comedy starring Billy Crystal and Josh Gad. Can I just say parenthetically, that is a show that, like more so than almost any new show I've seen in a while, that's one where you have to watch the first four or five to really start to like it because the first two episodes are like nails on a chalkboard and I think <laughs> intentionally so intentionally so like like you really they're really hateful people they hate each other it's a world of showbiz jerks but but towards the end of that run they start to find their rhythm and that's you realize that a lot of that stuff in the first few episodes is entirely intentional but the fact that it's a, a, a show that's only airing one new episode a week makes me wonder if anybody's going to stick around it did pretty well in ratings its first week so we'll yeah, see yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we move on to Game of Thrones, what we all want to talk about most right now, I think. <laughs> In last night's premiere, we, we opened with the flashback sequence of a young Cersei Lannister receiving a prophecy. Three questions you get. You unlike the answers. I've been promised to the prince. When will we marry? You'll never wed the prince. You'll wed the king. But I will be queen. Oh, yes. You'll be queen. For a time. Then comes another. Younger. More beautiful. To cast you down and take all you hold dear. Will the king and I have children? No. The king will have 20 children. And you will have three. That doesn't make sense. Gold will be their crowds. Gold. Their shrouds. So this kind of tells us a lot about Cersei and, you know, what her, where all her paranoia has come from. The, the prophecy tells us that she will be replaced by a, a younger woman who she assumes to be Marjorie. I think, I think we're meant to assume it's, it's Marjorie. What do you guys think about Cersei as we begin this season? She's kind of... You know, I thought it was Daenerys. I thought that was like the twit, like that she. This is like her making a mistake. It's like everyone thinks it's this lady, but like sleep. Okay, with one so eye you open. think yeah, you think it's not Marjorie? I haven't either. Yeah, to be clear, I, I haven't read the books. Um, and please don't write in and encourage me to do so because that's just <laughs> not <laughs> not really but on the, the agenda. Books, I'm never going to read. No, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. sorry, it's a TV show. To it's me. a big treasure for many people, but I won't be among them. Yeah, yeah. I guess I just sort of already knew where Cersei's anxiety comes from and it's from reality or the reality she lives in where like everyone does murder each other and no one does 
stand up for their her for themselves and there isn't anyone she can trust and everyone that she's ever trusted has used her as a bargaining chip and everyone she's ever trusted she has also manipulated right it's not a world that is otherwise extremely straightforward peaceful uh driven by loyalty or whatever right so like her trepidation and her always having sort of like like always looking over her shoulder it's just like well you'd have to a lot everything that you ever encounter has been fraught very fraught sometimes your fault sometimes not sometimes in ways that you know you should have seen coming and and often in ways that you couldn't possibly have so i think like the information from i don't know cave witch (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i was like oh lady gaga's dressed up in this episode i guess that to me didn't actually it, it was a nice touch, and I'm always looking for ways that that show can be more emotional because I think as much story as it goes through, I don't always have strong emotional connections wow. to the choices characters are making and, mm-hmm. and the way that things affect them. That prophecy is very Macbeth, and the show, the entire show is very Macbeth, and it made me think of the Burnham Wood prophecy in Macbeth, which is not what you think it's going sure. to be. You know, and I feel like they're playing very directly towards that. But I was fascinated particularly, and I'm going to try to be vague here because I watched the first batch of episodes pretty much back to back, and I don't want to inadvertently reveal something from episode two mm-hmm. or three or whatever. Yeah, they do. I, I also watched four in a row, same. and it's just like they... They kind of blur together. They, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like blur makes it sound bad. It's no, not, it's not bad. bad. It's just it's like a, a lot of these stories have a lot of moving pieces, and um, there's... There's a like, constant cross-cutting. Right, and I think mm-hmm. there's also just like a lot of things that are like part of every episode. It's like, oh, is that the one where someone got promoted in the like tax office? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, oh, I like I'm didn't exactly like I don't remember where that part was, but there is part of like you used to be this kind of paper pusher and now you're this other kind and I that actually, is eventually important but i like i don't remember which episode i was that actually exactly jo- joking in. on twitter uh, a few days ago about this uh how uh, every episode there's at least one scene where somebody says give us the room and everyone has to leave the room <laughs> so two people can talk and uh, a friend of mine came back and joked that you know once the room is clear the the person who asked it to be clear says uh, remind me again who we're supposed to be. I didn't want to ask with the other people around. Because <laughs> I often have to consult. There's so many characters. It's like, this is like a Deadwood-level populist cast. There's like 50, 40, 50, 60 regular characters moving in and out. I find it a lot more difficult to follow than Deadwood. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, I mean, I made the mistake in season one. I think we all, maybe I'm revealing a secret about myself, but before you know every character's name, you sort of have like a made up sort of dad name that you use for yeah, them in your yeah, head yeah. I was like oh old white beard's back yeah. <laughs> like my bad yeah, there's like 50 oh, old white beards so yeah. I was like how does that guy got back and forth on the wall so often pants. Like, oh those are two different people saucy Lynch like, I love her <laughs> oh yay sad whore is back I was like JK like don't call anyone that you're gonna have like a really hard time moving forward so like I don't know there there are definitely like sort of tertiary characters where it's like how much am I supposed to care about like mad sword (laughs) oh shit he's really important now i will say you know obviously the whole show has always been about power and all the different permutations of it but i feel like they're really they're structuring it very nicely in this first batch of episodes where they've got john snow daenerys and um cersei who are all at different phases of power there's one who's kind of at the beginning of ascension to power there's one who's at her peak and is afraid that she's going to start to fall and the other being cersei who we've talked about is falling and and Game of Thrones has this remarkable ability to make me care for characters who I hate, 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 hate for most of the run of the show. Like suddenly something will happen, their fortunes will turn, and I'll realize that I'm feeling sympathy for somebody like Prince Joffrey, 
you know. Right. <laughs> it was sad. His death was very, very think, sad, even though he was the scummiest of the scumbags. I don't think I could ever feel sorry for Ramsey Bolton, though. I think he's oh, God, the only no. one that no, just he's, will never deserve. He's the, he's the slime. <laughs> I didn't feel no sorry doubt. for Joffrey at all. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I'm usually the person who is, like, a total crybaby about every possible thing. But I yeah. was like, I hope you choke on that feather, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Matt, yeah. you mentioned similarities to the, the Godfather in your review of, of this season. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's just scene after scene after scene where characters who mean well, who think of themselves as basically good people, and who go into a power position uh, from a point of view where they want to reform things or do things differently, are confronted with this this moment where they have to do something just horrible, like the kind of thing where you can't even look at yourself in the mirror if you do it, but they feel on some level that it has to be done, and so they do mm-hmm. it. And and it just reminds me of those are the sorts of uh, decisions that had to be made in the Godfather films all the time. A lot of the moments in these first four episodes remind me of when Fredo gets into that rowboat, and we see that shot of Michael watching him get in the rowboat through the window, knowing what's about to happen to him. And there's even a a very direct acknowledgement of that in the dialogue between two characters where one says, you know, he quotes the God, he kind of misquotes the Godfather line, I was always told you should keep your enemies close. And the other character says, well, anybody who said that doesn't have very many enemies. (laughs) There's so much to love about the show, but at the same time, it is perched on the edge of ridiculousness because it is so dark and so dour. And I found myself... In, in a very affectionate way, making fun of it a lot as I was watching it this time. And I do that, but even more so this time because it's just so unrelentingly twisting the knife in your gut that I kind of wanted Monty Python to tie more pin <laughs> to 1980 and just go to town. I mean, there is, like, I feel like such a herb being like, I talked about this on Twitter, but I was yeah. just like, I just want one time somebody to say, bring out your dead. Like, yeah. just once. <laughs> like, let's yeah. just get it out of the way. I do think that, like, some of the show's grandness gets exhausting for me. Like, it's just like, I get it. You have so much money, but at the end of the day, like, as cool and as grand as a lot of these stories and set pieces and all the exteriors seem, I just... I vastly prefer those little tiny stories. I va- I would much rather spend an entire day from from dawn to dusk with Arya. Yeah, or with Lady Brienne and her squire. Oh my god, yeah. Like I want them the to most, sing like the Don Quixote like I'm Sancho. Like I that they're great. And I just like I want to get people's deals a lot harder because I think one of the things the show sort of prides itself on is that people aren't exactly how they seem and everyone who's very villainous has these like psychic wounds that lead to that and everyone who seems very virtuous will stab you in the back the second you turn around right right and, and, I, and people know people think they always know why they're doing things and often they don't right and I just I guess I I I care so much more about like the emotions than I do about like what uh what constitutes battle or like right how do I, we capture this mm-hmm. fort I, I, yeah. I know that makes puts me in the minority of people who watch Game of Thrones that people are very drawn to these like epic sort of battle sequences and, the, and these huge um, vistas and stuff like that but like I don't give a shit about that stuff at all yeah. See, like, I, I like that I stuff. much more I care so much more about if this whole episode was about Cersei's childhood I'm like yes finally like getting in and I know that that's not what the show is or for and I can't judge it based on like what I wish it were but, but nice I do to have a bottle episode like I that, guess I do so. well just they do like, though and I think actually on those rare occasions when they do a self-contained episode where they're staying in one place from, but it's a, for, for a most war. of it it's Yes, but it's also putting all of the characters in one location so that it's a pressure cooker and you spend some quality time right. with them. So yeah, they're kind of having, it's, it's, I guess you would say, yeah. the best of both worlds if you like the spectacle and the intimacy. Right. But again, I don't know what other choice they have. No, sure. I mean, I think I think it's in the locations. tough spot of it's 10 episodes a season, which is not a long season. And there's just, 
I don't know how there could be more going on, except we do know that there's about to be more going on because everyone's like, oh, guys, heads up. I heard these people are coming. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, did you hear about them? They're pretty dope. Really confusing. <laughs> like, right. So we know and, you know, this isn't a spoiler to assume that we will continue to have new players in the field and and there will continue to be advisors. And I do like the way that things are, are being reoriented in the way that the entire show seems to have been collectively moving in a particular direction so that you, you see certain destinies playing out for certain characters and it's starting to unravel. That's a moment where I think Game of Thrones actually earns this claim on being not just a sword and sorcery escapist uh, fantasy, but something like The Godfather, which was a disreputable genre of the gangster film, that had something to say about life as we know it. And, if this and, is escapist you know, for you, like yeah. I don't know, like well, this is not escapist. Of, just in the sense that it's a world that you you know you don't see every day. But but I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is if you read uh, the newspapers, and I think they want you to think this way, the way they're writing some of these stories, you see a lot of parallels to some of our foreign misadventures going on in some of these storylines sure. where you know we're going to be greeted as liberators and and maybe we are but only by a small handful of people who have something to gain from treating us that way and then things start to just turn to shit immediately right yeah <laughs> and i like that and i like seeing characters who just win and win and win and win and win all of a sudden not they're not winning anymore what does it do to them and you see that look of blank terror in their face and it's very dramatic you mentioned what? destiny a second ago and that to me is one of the things i enjoy about the show i like stories about people who have a destiny like a and we're not talking like everyone has a you know have, like are destined to have another like spaghetti and meatball dinner at some point in our lives or whatever but like like a real true like difficult hard destiny that right. is either said to them explicitly like this episode obviously Cersei was told her destiny and either yeah. believed it completely or wanted to tell herself oh maybe it's not the whole this I mean this is just like a cave witch lady like maybe she's crazy right like there was a little bit of that like I don't want to believe what I'm being told she talked about like Macbeth obviously um, we have this like strong conflict of what I think I'm supposed to do what I think like, I'm truly destined for and what I want and every time that triangle shifts that's where we get drama and tension and excitement but sometimes I don't think all three are always in conflict that's a great way of putting it and I also feel like this you know if I had to boil Game of Thrones down to just sort of one sentiment it's Boobies. to me to me this show is about <laughs> how unbelievably hard it is to be a genuinely good person and get anything done you know, like in this yeah. world, I mean, you that we see, see Daenerys struggling with that a lot. You see it's... that, and and also she does the, what she thinks is the right thing for the right reasons, and you can make a case that she is doing the right thing for the right reasons, but she's running into some cultural uh, conflicts yeah. here that are not going to be rationalized I mean... away. And you see that a lot of other characters are doing that too. And then there's the more basic matters of this underling did something uh, that I agree with, but they did it without asking permission, and the rules say you you got to kill that person if they do it. And now what do I do? You know, there's a lot of instances like that. This person, you know, my, my brother, my sister has been caught stealing. I have the power to pardon them, but if I do, everybody's going to know I'm a hypocrite, so what do I do? Right, you know, how do I make right. a small unethical, or small choice that I know I don't want to make in the hopes that it somehow maintains a greater order? And right. what we know is that, like, there's no such thing as greater order period like all order eventually like there is profound cultural entropy throughout the series everything in the show is tending towards chaos and the harder you try to put up a monument the faster it's going to get knocked down right, right. See, and they actually show you i that. mean yeah. in the most literal the sense, sense the we see the heart like you know they are and yet so, and yet those masks are a symbol of the old order persisting which is kind of cool right because yeah. like you can't destroy anything you only spread it out right yeah like, yeah yeah and so as much as we see and that's sort of what happens with like the starks right they you're you know, you can kill a bunch of them, but the rest of them simply spread out 
and their sort of base of power is dissolved, but the actual things that they believe in or want, like those aren't dissolved, right? Well, that's also that's also another great point is that, uh, you know, these these monuments, these statues that we see are symbols of, of the dominant power, and those are toppled, but it's only the symbol that's been toppled. And the people who actually held that power at one time still hold some remnant of it, and they're going about their business underground trying to get their power back. And you see that in, you know, pretty much every major location on the show has sure. some version of that mm-hmm. going on. And I think where... this season is sort of framed as targeting or exploring the character's religiosity more. Yeah, um, definitely. And that becoming a more important thing. I'm sure we'll talk about that more later in the season. But it is interesting, especially for a show that's, you know, sort of modeled on War of the Roses stuff where religiosity is a major factor and, and sort of the structures of power. It'd be very difficult to talk about any structure of massive global power or international power or whatever without acknowledging aspects of uh, religion. Like, Because in a lot of ways, like religion is like a like an autobiography of a society, like a thing that a group of people who would otherwise not agree on something have agreed on. So the ways that we organize ourselves around those ideas, Game of Thrones has touched on vaguely and touches on and really digs into more. And I'm curious about that because I think one of the things that bugs me about the show is it's not always clear how people are situating themselves, how they see themselves and how they see their role in society, because we were told what their role is, but it's not, it's almost never what someone sees as their actual role. Yeah. And so, I mean, think with Jon Snow or whatever, right? It's sort of the prime example of that. Um, And so I think one way many characters and many people situate themselves in the world is some like aspect of religiosity, whether it's atheism or not. Like we can see the way that that gives you a a place in a chaotic universe. Like (laughs) how, you know, there's darkness before and darkness after. Then what's in the middle? It's the baseline social structure that keeps everything from spinning into chaos, even if they're even if people are hypocritical about how they observe. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just and and for a show that's so consumed with systems of power and and power identity and what makes somebody powerful, what makes someone valorous, what makes somebody trustworthy, what are the things that, you know, what keeps contracts in place? What are the ways that we assign like a gold standard to stuff? Right. Like some of that's government, some of that's religion, some of that's both. This is the sort of like deep in your (laughs) heart stuff that I want the show to bring out more and if I don't see another like woolly mammoth on fire like okay like I'm willing to trade that <laughs> yeah so the the TV show we're discussing is Game of Thrones and we'll be discussing it a lot in the coming weeks we're going to move on to Sunday night's episode of Mad Men in just a moment but first up Vulture's West Coast editor Joe Adalian will be speaking with Ben Wexler, the showrunner of The Comedians, about FX's new show starring Billy Crystal and Josh Gad, the intergenerational dynamic on the show, and how it all came together. So take it away, Joe. Thanks, Gazelle. Ben, thank you for joining us here on the Vulture TV podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a, a pleasure. Let's just start for people who are thinking of watching and tell us what the show is. I will say up front, it's a weirdly hard show to boil down in less than 30 seconds, but I'll do my best. It's a mock documentary that takes you behind the scenes of a sketch comedy show starring an older comic and a younger comic. In this case, the older comic is Billy Crystal and the younger comic is Josh Gad. They're both playing sort of heightened versions of themselves. You know, Billy Crystal is a guy who who did host the Oscars and who did star in City Slickers and When Harry Met Sally, and Josh is a guy who was the voice of Olaf and Frozen and was in 1600 Pen, and we, you know, we make copious jokes about, <laughs> about 1600 Pen in particular, but these are guys who are playing versions of themselves who have been paired by the network, in, in our case FX, a little bit against their will. I think both of the guys would rather be the sole star of their own comedy show, but they're sort of reluctantly paired to do this two-hander comedy team. And we look behind the scenes at the making of that show, and we, we show little snippets of the 
sketches in the show within the show, and and I think that's the best I can do. So so maybe just I don't know, just start at the beginning. Tell me the origin story for for how this this show came to be in the United States. A producer from Fabric Entertainment named Michael Bondison, who I'm I'm friendly with, gave me this format to look at, and you know it was immediately something that I saw and thought this could really be a show that I could write. And uh, he seemed open to that. And the next step was sitting down with Billy Crystal, which is a meeting that you're not going to say no to, even if you don't like the show. It was well. How, how, tell me, back up, how did we get to the point from this is an interesting format to and Billy Crystal? And Billy Crystal was in, involved. Well, Mickle was, was responsible for getting the, the format to Billy as well. So I see. It, it sort of... You know, he he went to Billy as a as an executive producer and a star. At the same time, he came to me as a potential showrunner for the show. So by the time I was on board, Billy was the guy who was going to be the star of the show, and it was literally one of those great moments of well, if nothing else, I get to sit down and meet Billy Crystal. So it was you know it was, it was exciting and and a lot of fun and. You know, you you walk into a meeting expecting like a bottle of water and for it to go for about an hour. And this meeting lasted two and a half hours. And obviously that, you know, it, it felt like it had gone well and it had because he, he wanted uh, he wanted to work with us. And then and this was all before FX, correct? This, this is all before FX. We right. it was before Josh. It was before FX. When we were all sort of on board, then we got a pitch together and took it around to various cable networks. And then I'm skipping some stuff, but we basically we wound up at FX very happy. Now, obviously, anytime you do um, behind the scenes in Hollywood, there are going to be shows that you're going to compare it to because it's a, it's a genre that's been done uh, and, and done most brilliantly by the Larry Sanders show back in the 90s. And and yet this show does not seem to be trying to be in many ways the, the Larry Sanders shows. I mean, it's, if anything, it's maybe a kinder, gentler version of it, it in, in that you, to me, based upon the three episodes I've seen, it, it doesn't shy away from the insanity that is Hollywood. And then anyone who's worked in Hollywood or worked around Hollywood knows it's it's there, the insecurity, the drama, et cetera. But the characters do seem less stark. The show seems less interested in, to me at least, and I may, I may be wrong, in the industry than the dynamic between Josh and Billy, even as much a generational thing as well. Um, is that is that accurate? I mean, that's to, to... totally accurate. I think you nailed it, actually. I mean, first of all, I'll say, just speaking for myself, we'd be honored to be mentioned in the same breath as Larry Sanders. That's one of the best shows ever made. And I, I'm glad you feel like we're not trying to be it because, we, you know, that's, uh, well, I think we're trying to be our own show. But I think you hit the nail right on the head, which is ultimately the milieu of this show is hollywood for sure and it is a it is a business that obviously we all work in and we all know really really well but the heart of this show thematically is exactly what you said it's a it's an intergenerational dynamic between these two guys and you know you don't often have situations where a 30 something year old guy is working closely with a 60 something year old guy it just doesn't happen that often where two guys of different generations are sort of placed in this lifeboat together and told, you know, you, you got to make it work and you have to figure out a way to collaborate. And, and that was always the interesting sort of human dynamic of, of the stories that we could tell. And as I've said to, to a number of people, nobody knows the voices of Billy Crystal and Josh Gad better than Billy <laughs> Crystal and Josh Gad. So we kind of are able to hit the ground running with two characters who feel fully fleshed out and like living, breathing people in a real situation. Now, you, you sold the show to FX without Josh Gad, correct? Yes. 
So that's interesting too, even in Hollywood, uh, you know, with especially with such a youth obsession in in the town that that the first name attached was the older comedian as opposed to the hot younger comedian. To me, that's interesting. Says something about effects. But how did you then go and get Josh Gad involved, and and what was sort of the process with that, and and, and why Gad, and when did he come on board? The process was a, was a fairly simple one, actually, which was mm-hmm. that Billy, Larry, and, and and Matt and I sat down. We we kicked around a, a number of names, but but really not a huge number. And at some point, Billy mentioned Josh as a guy who he had seen him in, in Mormon, and, and we all were fans of him. We thought he was hilarious, and he was literally the only person we met with, first and last person we met with. And it just felt like there was a chemistry there between the two guys. And, and we really, honestly, we really got lucky because uh, it just worked out beyond any of our expectations. Well, that sounds like it's a lot different than, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> the, the early meetings between the two characters on the show doesn't go quite as well, and that's where the comedy is. But I'm wondering, has there been a moment in the production of the show in which it has seemed like, you know, is this real or is this the comedian's moment? Yeah, it happens all the time where something happens, whether it's a conflict within the group or whether it's just a, a simply hilarious Hollywood thing that's happening to us, and we just look at each other and we're like, well, this this clearly goes in the show. There was a Hollywood conversation that I had where it was basically, without giving too much away, it was somebody was making a decision about me that was very awkward, (laughs) and I had to say, hey, listen, I just want you to know, however this shakes out, there will be no hard feelings. And And the way they responded made me feel like, oh, it's going to work out fine. And I'm like, oh, great, that's so great. And, and then in the, the same breath, the person was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm definitely not uh, giving you the job. I just want, I disagree that there will be no hard feelings. And it was, it was literally a, a run of dialogue that I borrowed and, and put directly into our pilot because it, it just seemed so funny to me that that's like the Hollywood way of saying, oh, no, 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 you're not getting what you want, but, you know, you, you still have to like me afterwards. There's an exchange with Billy and another character in, in our pilot that's, that's directly from that. Hollywood is one of the most passive-aggressive places on earth. Um, there's no doubt about that. I mentioned that you've worked on different kinds of shows, sort of traditional old-school comedy like Still Standing and King of Queens, which are multi-camera shot in front of the live studio audience thing, and then shows that are more of the newer ilk of comedy, uh, single-camera shows such as Arrest Development and uh, Community. I'm just wondering, sort of, do you, do you feel, as someone who's written for both, in a, in a very different headspace working on one kind of show versus the other, or is it really not as dramatic as that? And you're just just trying to make jokes that are funny and characters that are real. I think the short answer is, yeah, you, you are trying to make jokes that are funny and characters that are real, and it doesn't really matter what the format is. Full disclosure, I will just say, as a fan, I don't really watch a ton of multicam, if any, anymore. The shows uh, like Arrested and Community are the shows that I actually am a, a real fan of and was privileged to get a chance to work on. But hopefully you have the freedom to let the format the story you're trying to tell. And, you know, in, our, in the case of our show, our show is part documentary, part sketch show, part live sketch show, part sort of film on location pieces that, that have nothing to do with the, the story we're telling. And, and it somehow manages to all cut together in a sort of a, a verite way. And it's, it's not an opportunity you, you might have had 15 years ago when most of the comedies really were just studio audience comedies. This is uh, a show that I would watch, but it's also a show that we're hoping not to fall into any formula from one episode to the next. I think we're, you know, we're very inspired by Louis, who kind of seems to push the boundaries and change up the tone, really, from one story to the next. And it, it, it always feels organic, and it feels like he 
he's telling the truth. And I think that's that's our main goal here. Does it feel like a in terms of you know any new TV show is going to be sort of an evolutionary process, right? In the case of the comedians, would you say there's a big difference between episode one and episode, I believe it's thirteen for the first season? Yes. I would say one thing the luxury of time afforded us was we had most of the scripts done by the time we went into production. So we didn't have to do quite as much writing on the fly as you usually have to do in a, in a, in a full season show. The shows that I tend to gravitate to, again, purely as a fan, seem to have a little bit of an arc to each season. And each season sort of tells a story and you can kind of put a DVD on your shelf and have it feel like it's a, a collection. And we, we tried to do that with this. And so I would say there's, a, there's absolutely an evolution from episode one to episode 13. It's not as strictly serialized as some shows are, but the change such as it is, is hopefully by design. I mean, it's, a, it's the first season of the show is really about the evolution of the relationship between these two guys. And so, yeah, absolutely. The dynamic of two people who are meeting for the first time in episode one and, spoiler alert, finishing out the, their first season of production at the end of, of our season, they've definitely come a long way with each other. And, and hopefully the journey is, is worthwhile. And each episode is, is funny and, and interesting in its own right. Well, thank you, Ben Wexler, for coming by the Vulture TV podcast. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Joe. It was really, really fun to talk to you. Gazelle, back to you in the studio. Thanks, Joe. The show is The Comedians, and it's on every Thursday at 10 p.m. on FX. On the latest episode of Mad Men, we open with Betty and Don in this scene of domesticity, and the waitress from the the premiere episode is back kind of unexpectedly. And this episode feels kind of weirdly segmented, and it spent a lot of time on new characters like the waitress and uh, Pima, played by Mimi Mimi Rogers. Rogers. Yes, Mimi Rogers' character. And a lot of fans didn't didn't like this so much based on the Twitter reactions. What do you think of this approach now that we have five episodes left, you know, bringing in these new characters? and I hate to be that guy, but every time a show is steaming towards its its series finale, we get complaints like right. this. You know, I remember this from when The, the Sopranos was, was heading into its final stretch. Why are we spending so much time with Vito? Why is Tony in a coma for two episodes? Like, people want to spend quality time with the core cast and... Sometimes the show is the thing that's on its mind, and this is not a terribly likable episode, but I thought there was a lot to admire in it. You know, the episode was called New Business, and I think what we were driving at by introducing these new characters was that they're not new in any real capacity, right? Like, Diana is technically new. Like, Don doesn't know her, but, like, Don knows her, right? And well, Pima... she's, kind of, he's kind of dating himself. Right, of course. Yeah. Like, she's him. She's like... It's so creepy. And, you yeah. know, that, like, that dumpy apartment she lives in reminded me a, a lot... If you're a narcissist, that's a dream date. ...of Adam Whitman's apartment, like, his, like, single single occupant, like, his SRO, like, shithole or whatever, right? Yeah. So, yeah, Pima's new, but, like, a photographer who wears men's clothes and is attracted to women, like, we know Joyce already, who's a photo editor who wears masculine presenting clothing, who is a lesbian and who has flirted with Peggy before, right? So, like, it's new, but, like, not that new. And Pima looks like she's maybe borrowed a tie from Roger. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we, like, this is not the first time we've seen Stan um, have anxiety about, um, you know, advertising versus art, right? Like, you know, so none of these things are actually new, new. Right, we see Megan Megan's blue dress that she wears for her lunch with Harry. That's an iconic dress that she wore when she picked Don up from the airport in time zones, right? So, you know, nothing is actually new. It's not new business. Everything's old business. If somebody was like, oh, yeah, that's the last Diana episode, I'd be like, okay. But I still think, you know, we did get a lot of 
um, traction on that when she says to Donj, like, I have a twinge. It's like, oh, a twinge? Like, nostalgia? Like, we talked about? Yeah. Right? right? That's the so exact she, word that Don uses. Scene, she right. says she has a twinge in her chest. Yeah, yeah. and that's and the that's exact the language that Don yeah. uses in the wheel, right? Right. And uh, where he also even says that he was told about that from his old boss, who was Greek, and we see they make note of the fact that Diana's Greek boss calls to tell Don where she works, right? Right. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, like, it's not that new. So they're I always, get the, they're all perched, everything's perched on the edge of being kind of dream logic, just like a lot of this these was, episodes. Like, yeah. I thought this week and last week, we talked last week about the sort of feeling of return and this, like, cycle and, I mean, not to be the wheel, but, you know, round and round, right? And this week, I had that same feeling of this, like, very Freudian sense of uncanny, right? That means, like, home but not home. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with Betty talking about being a, <laughs> like, going back to school oh, to be right. a, a, psychologist. a psychologist. It was like, okay, well, you're probably going to have to learn a little bit about this. But specifically, this, like, idea of uh, Freudian uncanniness of it's the same but not the same. And, and that is framed in in Freud with actually like accidentally walking through a red light district and being like oh I got to get out of here and walking yourself right back. So there's right. not nothing to this idea of like Don home but not home. He's at his apartment but all of his shit is gone, right? Like it's yeah, his daughter's room but yeah. she doesn't live there. There's this whole like sense of right but not quite right. And, and there's also that sense of uh and so many of the major characters on Mad Men deal with some version of this of feeling in your heart that you are doing something that is new, like that is in some way new, that you're breaking the cycle, but in fact you may just be repeating the cycle without knowing it. And and there's always that question that lingers in the back of our minds as we're watching Don interact with Diana, because I felt from the way that John Hamm played that scene with her where he tries to give her the, new, the guide to New York, when he says, I'm ready, I felt like maybe Don really was ready, because I, there, I've got a notebook here filled with examples of moments where Don could have made a situation worse, escalated it, pick, picked a scab open or something. In this episode, the last episode, and a lot of episodes from the first half of season, season seven, and he didn't do it. And there's real evidence of growth in this guy, but at the same time, he's also Don Draper. And, and she seems to pick up on that. She seems to sense, you know, there's some kind of fundamental psychic danger about this guy. And there's so many warning signs that he can't rationalize away, like the fact that, that he's got to hustle her out of bed because his, uh, his soon-to-be ex-wife is coming over to pick up her stuff. He tells her the truth, but he doesn't tell the entire truth. But of course, she does that to him, too. Also, like, how much truth are you supposed to tell her right then? Right, exactly. Right? right. Like, like, you could be the most forthcoming, decent person. It's like, you guys have hung out one time. Let's just get your right. life story. Like, Yeah, yeah. Although, I guess maybe if you think about it tactically, it's like, it's okay to dole out the, informa- the damaging information in small doses, but maybe, maybe don't have her spend the night before your wife's coming to pick up her stuff, you know? <laughs> I don't know. It seems like he's trying to, you know, as you said, get on the right track, but he's misguided as always. Like, he doesn't really know her. He just had this fixation on her and has this idea of the person that she is. But I don't really get a sense that he's actually, anything that he's doing is any going to be any less self-destructive. Well, and anything. also, as we've quoted in this space before, Faye said, you know, you only like the beginnings of things. Well, and then to have Pete say, what if you only get to do the beginning part, right? And right. Pete uses that mm-hmm. as an example of failure. And Don's like, oh, is that one of the choices? That sounds great, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, oh, I'd love to just have a series of beginnings of things. Of course, he wouldn't say that. But, like, that's the that's the framing of that. Because especially, again, to use that, like, echo language of things that we that are, like, iconic and memorable from the show, the beginning of things, that's sort of 
if there are other shows that use it as often, I'd be surprised. Well, there's so many echoes, so many obviously very deliberate echoes in here. And I thought of when uh, Don writes that million dollar check to Megan, I thought of the line from the suitcase, that's what the money is for. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. You know, and like in the sense of you, sometimes in life you literally pay for your mistakes, like literally pay for them. And this is one of those cases where Don not only does that, but it seems like he's doing it willingly. Like as, an, as close to an honest expression of remorse as you can get from a guy who will write a check to say how sorry he is. And we had like Harry say, uh, you know, you always find out. And Tom's like, you always tell me. Yeah. Right. And we just do it again and again. And you didn't like there's no learning from anything here. I thought the scene with Megan and Don in the lawyer's office was interesting, especially because we had that scene with Roger saying, you know, she's going to say blah, 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 the way Jane did. And Don's like, no, she won't. And then it's like we, we actually have a clip does. from this episode. I wasn't going to say a word. I wasn't going to give you the satisfaction of knowing that you ruined my life. Megan. Why did I believe you? Why did I believe the things you said to me? Why am I being punished for being young? I gave up everything for you because I believed you and you're nothing but a liar. An aging, sloppy, selfish liar. I was surprised by that scene because those weren't sentiments we'd actually really heard Megan express much yeah. before. And it felt familiar because we've heard other people well, yeah. express it. And it's also not, not like it's not out of the question that people have. Many people have probably expressed those sentiments, probably especially women who were in a power differential position and married an older man who they thought he was going to change for them. And he like, did for it. example, like Megan's mother, who's projecting her own issues onto Megan's marriage. And Megan is happy to project right back. Exactly. Right. Where she's like, yeah. she was unhappy for a long time. And it's like, oh, was she <laughs> like, <laughs> right. We, we see that happening. Um, I was a little surprised, especially because, you know, in a lot of ways, like I don't like Don certainly cheated on her. And we've seen Don be very emotionally abusive and physically threatening like there are plenty of scenes where Don and Megan oh, yeah. are like ch he's chasing her through the apartment and, it, and it's scary like she's scared Don has committed sexual assault and he has been sexually assaulted that's something that that we tend to forget because this show has been on so long yeah know? remind us of his sexual well assault. he lost his virginity to a prostitute in a flashback but it seems he, that's a rape know, he was raped, raped. In a yeah that's yeah. right and it's and it was weird that a lot of the the next morning analysis didn't describe it that way it just described it more generically as a deflowering uh, but I, it, to me, read as very straightforward, oh, non-consensual sex. Like absolutely. arousal is not consent. Everyone has watched SVU, and he's a minor. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and but then you know, Don with Bobby Barrett. You know. Oh, I uh, that doesn't read as sexual assault to me. So that oh, read I as I don't know. It did to me, but uh, that read as part of their like kinky power play. Wait, who mm. assaulting who in that? Don assaulting Bobby. <laughs> okay, in the bathroom at the restaurant. Yeah. Um, that to me was part of their kinky uh, games. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Up for debate. <laughs> <laughs> um, but certainly Don is somebody who... It certainly seemed an expression of power and dominance on his part that went beyond game playing, at least through my eyes, although other people may disagree with that. Sure. I yeah. mean, it's definitely not like a very easygoing, like, lovey-dovey scene. <laughs> no. and I can definitely say that he's displayed behavior like this. Yeah. Very, you know, sexually harassed woman. Time oh, and yeah. Time. And yeah. he has no qualms about pressuring people into sex. Yeah. And... That's fucked up. And he's fucked up. And, like, a lot of the people on the show are messed up. But I, I thought in that moment with Megan, when she talks about, like, you know, how he ruined her life, it was just like, oh, is that true? Because that doesn't seem true to me. Is she talking about the move to L.A.? Because move back. 
right? And and Megan is not somebody who's incapable. We've actually known her to be a very capable copywriter. She could work in advertising. She's good at it. You're good at everything, Don once said to her. She's talented. She's bilingual. She went to college. Is she really so high and dry? Megan, if she's actually that desperate, isn't actually doing anything about it. Yeah, but she's also not very far removed from having essentially an atom bomb detonate in her personal life. So I don't I don't judge her too much for that. I mean, she's going to I think she's going to over dramatize and maybe misrepresent her potential in life at this point. But I can see why she would do it. I guess I just, you know, I mean, the relationship she has with her mom, her mom is very cold, very much like grow the fuck up, right? That's like sort of like the mom's refrain. She calls Megan a bitch. She says, you know, the world can't support so many ballerinas. She says she's like not talented as an actress or just like hopeless actress. And Megan's like, what? And she's like, oh, ha ha. Like, that's just a mistake in English. Like, I meant it this other way in French. Well, but go back. Let's hop in the Wayback Machine for just a second there. Am I right in remembering that Megan gave up her job on the New York soap to go out to L.A. because she thought Don was... Yeah, yeah. they were going to go. So I feel like he bears some responsibility for that. Like, she had a a pretty good gig in New York didn't she? Yeah, but she says to Harry that she's going on plenty of auditions. Like, I don't know how many working actors and actresses you guys know, but the your job is to audition, and if you get cast, then that's bonus. But you get you have to like have like a hundred no's before you really get to start bitching about it. There's a lot of people who would give anything to be in Megan's position to be getting auditions in the first place. She has a sub credit. She has commercial credits. This is not quite as dire as she's making it sound. It's dire enough that she wants to get dressed up for lunch with Harry, but it, that to me is like part of her constant immaturity. So we see Megan throughout the show be like, I don't feel well. I want to go home. She says it when she's embarrassed. She says it when she's grouchy. She says it when she just doesn't want to participate. There's a touch and of Betty to her sometimes. That's, a, that's mm-hmm. just a really little kid move. That's yeah. what a little girl does. And it's weird because Megan is the grown-up and we, we've been told Betty is like the quote-unquote little girl that Don was married to. But in so many ways, Megan is much more a little girl. Like, I don't feel well. Can I leave? Right? Like, can you write me a note? I want to go home. That's kids shit. That's not how grownups are allowed to do stuff or supposed to do stuff. And and she does it anyway, and she gets away with it. That casts Harry's line, you are every man's fantasy in quite a different light, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about that scene. How, uh, where did that Well, it, as if Harry wasn't right. unlikable enough, you know? Because <laughs> right. I, I, I felt like a lot of people like, whoa, like, how far has he fallen? And it's just like, oh, wait, like the Zooby fall- Zoo episode. He's he, like, always kind been of, scummy. Yeah, no, the one sh- talking like. Oh yeah, about her in the office, right? And we've we've seen seen we've seen Harry cheat on his wife in season one, right? It wasn't like he went from this like lovable panda sweetheart to like total scumbag. He cheats like he's sleeping in the office in season one. And also, the sexual harassment index in this episode is quite high, even by the standards of Mad Men. You know, like but you know, you've got Mimi Rogers' character, you've got the lunch between Megan and Harry, and you've got that moment where they go to visit the soundstage and. The sponsors uh, basically say, yeah, yeah, you can take the, what is what Models and bottles. Models and bottles, <laughs> yeah. If you behave yourself, you go home with one or the other. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is like in the air. Let's go back to Mimi Rogers for a second. When you mention her, you're mentioning how she's kind of assuming the, the man's role, right? In she this... is, and she's omnisexual, which is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> she, it seems like I don't get any sense of actual sexual desire from her. It seems mm-hmm. it's entirely about dominance. I think Peggy was right, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Professional advancement, I think, is almost incidental to her just wanting to win. Which mm-hmm. is also something that makes her kind of Don-like in a way. There's so many times where characters on in an episode will be mirrors of other characters, partial or otherwise. There was also the part that where she says to Peggy, like, no, I've never been married either. All of the adventures I would have missed, right? Like, I think in the way that she contextualizes sexuality, that's a different way than other characters do, right? So... She might just be somebody who's, like, not that into romance, not that into relationships. But if there's somebody that she's like, yeah, like, I'd tap that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, the second she meets Stan, you're like, oh, they're going to do it. Right? Like, that was, like, right. the most obvious, like, once over anyone has ever given each other. Right. They're both just like, 
Yeah. Down to clown. <laughs> so like sex so, as a weapon is something that's a, kind of running through this episode and not just a weapon. Sex is I commerce. Mean, There's an economy of sex on the show and we, and we see it portrayed with actual sex acts. We see it portrayed with titillation. We see it portrayed with like the performance of romance or whatever. Like right. Megan Actual sex for money, which we saw sure. last week. Yeah. And we'll probably see again given how the show works. And, you know, the way that Betty gets done up to go to this dinner because she's going to enroll in the fall, right? It's like, okay, well, that's not exact. That's not sex work, but there is an aspect of it that's like, oh, this is the role I play. Like, I go to a dinner, I am beautiful, I am charming, I'm interesting, and then I ask for the thing I want and I get it. Right. Um, you well, know, there's plenty what, of people that's that... That's what helps Mimi Rogers' character get a foot in the door at the agency is the first time she's talked about it, it revolves around how attractive she is, how sensual mm-hmm. she is. Well, but also that her work was interesting. Like, yeah. he heard a lecture from her at RISD. She's not, you know, and she... Yeah, but even the gay man <laughs> in the office is turned on by her. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm getting the vibe that you guys didn't like Pima. I thought she was kind of rad. Oh, I, I thought she was great. I, d- I didn't think she was likable, but I liked her. I didn't dislike her. I just wasn't so crazy about the plot line. I didn't think that Stan needed to be such a big part of the episode, and I didn't care as much about his neuroses coming out. Like, it just didn't mean anything to me. I guess I saw it as, like, a nudge towards, are they going to try to get Peggy and Stan together in another capacity? Because when when he was like... Oh, are you jealous? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah. Right? And probably not in the ways she expected and not in the ways that she would ever um, admit to herself. But there was a part of her that she, like, she does like the fact that Stan has, like, a fixation with her. And it's annoying sometimes, but we also have seen her grow through that like they've become very good friends like think of when they talk on the phone at night and like have each other's jokes and stuff like Peggy's relationship with Stan is complicated but it's deep it's and special. it's ultimately driven by mutual respect for each other's creative abilities which is which makes it one of the rare almost healthy relationships between a man <laughs> and a woman on this show even though their relationship is not I mean there's the scene where they're in their underwear together and Stan right. is like a relentless harasser for, especially yeah. for somebody who's the underling, is right. a total jerk. But I, I saw Pima as sort of an example of, like, how far apart are Peggy and Stan? And the answer is not very. Well, and it's also something that sexual secrets link a lot of the characters in this episode. And, of course, you know, now Stan has one from his girlfriend, Elaine. Interesting that he cheats on a, a woman who has hair like Mrs. Robinson and he has a girlfriend <laughs> yeah. named Elaine. Uh, yeah. And then you've got Roger uh, do, doing the deed with Marie and, and saying, you already emptied the place out. You wanted to file it as well. And obviously the answer is yes. And then you've got Don on the elevator with uh, Sylvia and Arnold. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, which raises the question of d- did Sylvia tell her husband? I kind of felt like they did, but other people feel like there's not enough information. But in any case, previously on Mad Men, they show us uh, Don and Betty sleeping together at the summer camp, which is a moment mm. that's, you know, sort of obliquely acknowledged in that look back when he sees her standing in the counter with uh, with Henry. Uh, like mm-hmm. like in the mess hall in uh, the previous episode. That to me was another echo. We see Don feed his kids in these moments of like real connection, right? Like when he and Sally eat waffles, or he makes her breakfast late at night, or when she makes him waffles with uh, rum and stuff. So like we don't actually see Don do these like very traditional tiny little dad moments, and and we get one there. I think we're supposed to tie it back in of like, you know, the person whose life he really ruined was Betty's, and she's turned out like her life is dope like she has the exact life that she said she wanted and she got it and i think when he sees that to have that um you know he tried again to ruin her life right and it didn't and again she was just like no like not again um and then to have that that to me is the thread when he's sitting there with megan and he's just like i don't i don't even know like that that whole thread of like am i bad am i good do i harm people am i worth being close to you live in this apartment because you think that's what you deserve he comes home to an empty depart empty apartment because 
that's what he thinks he deserves, right? So we have this constant thread of like, what did I do to people to make me into this person? And for Don, he's still not sure what the answer is. Right. All right. How about a one listener question before we go? This is a question from Colin. What are your thoughts on these revival series? I'm split. I roll my eyes when shows I don't care about get revivals. But when The X-Files was announced, I was high-fiving Jesus. I guess the problem becomes, is TV becoming like film and that they're just rehashing existing shows to make a buck? Margaret, you actually wrote a whole column about this on Vulture last week. If anyone wants a good TV column, Margaret's (laughs) column is called Stay Tuned. It's TV advice if you have (laughs) questions, especially like questions about your emotional investment in the shows you watch. And this week we did talk a lot about revivals. I also was like high-fiving Jesus for the X-Files for the record. That's like a really exciting idea to me. Yeah, I think this is a spot where comparing TV to movies is not a great call. There's a limit to sort of how much how many movies are going to come out at any given point and how the studios sort of wind up budgeting for film is very, very different from the way television operates. So there's never been more TV. I don't think we're in danger of all of the most popular shows on television or all of the best shows on television or whatever tentpole shows suddenly becoming revivals. That's nowhere close to what's happening. What is hard, though, is as much TV as there is, that makes it difficult for a show to stand out. So having the identity of a property like The X-Files or Twin Peaks or Full House, frankly, is a leg up. I don't think there's any person making television who doesn't do it for the money. TV is not a charity. It is art. It is interesting. I have devoted my entire life to it (laughs) in a lot of ways. But like, you know, networks and studios and stuff, they're there to make money. Mm -hmm. And if they make good art along the way, great. And I think a lot of them have and will continue to do so. But I think this sort of trepidation around like, oh, they're just trying to make a buck. It's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how buck making works. We and see this all the time with the types of shows that get made, like crime shows. You see like the sure. same show over and over again and some will be good and some won't. And like anything else, and this is something we talk a lot about on the podcast, TV goes in waves and there will become ways in which certain things are very cheap to produce, like certain reality shows. But then the cost benefit of it is also that they stop having a big return on investment. It was cheap to make, but it didn't make a lot of money. That's ultimately not worth it. Right. So I think for these revivals, we'll see how they do. And if they're good, they'll make a lot more of them. And if they're bad and no one cares and no one watched it, then we'll see them peter out the same way we saw game shows get big and peter out and news magazines get big and peter out and reality contest shows get big and peter out. TV will always have all these waves. I think in terms of revivals, there's like a couple of things that like I am excited for the X-Files. I do think that has like a certain sensibility and idea and identity that no other show has ever been able to quite get. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for Twin Peaks. For me, Full House seems like less urgent just because there are plenty of other sitcoms and and family sitcoms. And certainly like there's plenty of shows on ABC Family right now or Disney Channel or Nickelodeon that have that very cheesy, super exaggerated TGIF style. So I don't actually feel like that's filling a need that hasn't been met otherwise. I'd personally love to see an Even Stevens reboot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. It's time for Shia I mean, to get Shia back to his roots. Come back, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Colin, I would say don't carry so much heavy skepticism in your heart. And I, <laughs> the fact that you're worried about making it a buck makes me think you might be pretty young. I think one of the things that you grow out of as you get older is the concept of selling out becomes less egregious because life is difficult. And one thing that makes it a lot easier some of the time is having money. And I no longer look at the artists whose work I revere as somehow failing me or being a failure or robbing themselves of some kind of creative identity by ever monetizing the work that they do. So like, I encourage you to let that ship slowly sail away. Retain as much of your idealism as you can, but be maybe a little bit less judgmental about the choices other people make. 
Thanks, Margaret. Anytime, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thank you. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abdurrahman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller Sites, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Sites. And you can catch us all here again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>